Hello, and welcome to Cover to Credits, the bi-weekly podcast where we discuss books and their movie adaptations. I'm Ian George. And I'm Adina Hilton. In this episode, we'll be discussing Nimona. Nimona was written by N.D. Stevenson and also illustrated by them and was published in 2015. And the film adaptation, which premiered on Netflix in 2023, uh, was directed by Nick Bruno and Troy Quain. So really interesting history to this adaptation, to this graphic novel. Um, I'm really excited to talk about it. I think we have a lot of different interesting things to discuss. Um, But first off, I just want to mention the author and illustrator of this comic, uh, Andy Stevenson, who is trans mask, so um, is a trans man, and was kind of public about his journey to to coming out as trans, and actually has like had like a pretty prolific career. You know, Nimona was published when he was like right out of college. And then he would go on to write Lumberjanes, which was a really oh, popular right, right. graphic novel series for teenagers. And then um show ran the show Shira and the Princesses of Power. Yes. So involved in a lot of projects and you know goes by ND now or Nate. But obviously when this book was published it was published under um, his previous name before his transition. So we'll do our best and um, either refer to him as ND or Nate or just Stevenson, since the last name is the same. But I also wanted to talk about the history of this comic because it actually started out as a webcomic. Yeah, on Tumblr, right? Yeah, it's funny because we've also talked about Heartstopper on the podcast. Which, yeah, I was just thinking, I'm like, I feel like we were just doing this, right? Like a web comic that became a real comic. And- yeah, and you know what's funny about this one, though, is that this web comic was published between uh, 2012 and 2014 on Tumblr. Yeah. That was the timeline. Um, and I was actually reading it at the time. So I kind of came in a little bit late. I'd say maybe I started reading it in 2013, maybe late 2013, but I started reading it online. I was a fan of Stevenson's other comics. They were going by Ginger Hazing um, as oh, their username. Right. And I, they I made, remember that more than They made all these really funny, like, Lord of the Rings, Hunger Games comics, like, very pop culture referential. Um, they also did this project. Uh, it was called, like, the Hawkeye Initiative. Oh, that's right. And uh, <laughs> it was, like, this challenge for for this person this creator and other artists to draw hawkeye in poses that are traditionally used for women in comics so just like ass in the air or like right at the viewer or in these like contorted poses that usually be showing off their chest or something like just look up the hawkeye initiative (laughs) it's so funny like hawkeye like the superhero and just see some of the poses that people drew hawkeye (laughs) in because it's really funny obviously meant to expose the way female superheroes and women in hero comics are drawn. So yeah, I was a fan of their work. And then I started reading Nimona and followed it to its conclusion. And then obviously was super excited to see it published in an actual book format. And honestly, I've followed Stevenson's career since then. Yeah, I love the trajectory of their career. And like, I kind of am only now remembering, I remembered the, um, like, I forgot about the Hawkeye Initiative. I remembered like their other comics that were like, related to Pride and Prejudice or um, older novels and stuff. Uh, I think maybe you're thinking of um, a different 
Maybe I am, but Hark, I have seen I have seen ginger hazing. Yes, though, as you well. have. Yeah, Park of Vagrant. That's another one. Yeah, their style is kind of similar, actually. Yeah, and I've heard them compared to each other. I also really love uh, Hark of Vagrant, uh, which is Kate Beaton, um, who draws those comics. Okay. So yeah, a um, little bit different, but similar style. Yeah. So it's kind of funny to like see the trajectory of like how they've come up, and I feel like, and maybe I'm like. Maybe it's recency bias. I feel like we're seeing so many more creatives who begin their careers in social spaces, like online yeah. uh, platforms. Like there's a new movie out called Talk to Me that's a horror movie. And I didn't know this, but it's made by two brothers who are Australian, two young guys who began their career making really ridiculous YouTube videos. Mm-hmm. And I was like, oh, that's really cool. And it made me like want to watch that new movie so much more, right? Yeah. And I mean, there have always been some people that kind of like break through in that way. Like Bo Burnham is a great example. But I feel like more and more we're seeing more creatives, especially young people who kind of made a name for themselves in those spaces, uh, only to then get like, you know, when we're talking like Andy Stevenson, it was showrunner on She-Ra yeah. and has like other big projects going on. And it's really cool to see that transition, right? It's also cool to have maybe followed them towards the beginning, which I feel like when you're young, it's hard to do that because you don't know a lot of people who are big who start yeah. out. But the older you get, the more you know people when they started out small yeah. because you're just older. But yeah, it's really cool that I've, I've been able to follow him throughout his career um, and, you know, follow also, you know, his personal journey, you know, back before his transition, you know, coming out as queer, you know, marrying his wife and then eventually transitioning to, you know, the name Nate um, and, you know, he, him pronouns. And I think it's just really awesome to see people like find themselves and find uh, their identity. And it's interesting because this graphic novel was created before the author was trans, obviously, or not was trans, came out as trans, um, but before they even had come out as queer at the time. So I think it's really interesting to look at this and to be like, where are the signs? Oh, yeah. And I've seen Andy Stevenson interviewed and saying like, oh, yeah, there's clearly like me processing things about myself in this comic specifically and things that I felt that like either I wanted or was struggling with. And I think it's like really cool in that way that like obviously still spoke to like really good and affirming messages in a lot of ways about those topics as opposed to like, God, I think about like Tyler, the creator Mm -hmm. who early in his career, like said some of the most like disgusting, like homophobic shit in his songs. And then later came out as being I mean, he hasn't, like, put a label on it, like, but bisexual, essentially. Like, he raps about that now. Yeah. But, like, clearly he was struggling that, but, like, in a <laughs> not as healthy. Not, a, not as positive of a way. <laughs> yeah. So it's really cool that uh, Andy Stevenson's stuff is still, like, so, like, representative and positive and supportive in that way. Yeah, definitely. Uh, let's talk about the movie a little bit because I know the movie also had its own journey. Yeah, which I wasn't aware of until I started, like, researching it a bit for this episode. So, uh, Nimona, I think, began, like, it's, like, at least early production quite a while ago, I think as early as 2017, by Blue Sky Productions. Yeah. Who did, like, the Ice Age films and some other animated movies like that. They were owned by 20th Century Fox, which, of course, was then bought out by Disney. 
And eventually, I think in 2021, the studio was shut down. Yeah. And there's some speculation about why this project was maybe canned. I mean, I'm sure Disney could say, and maybe it's true that it's just like a lot of projects that studio was handling got canned. But obviously, there's a lot of queerness in this film. Overt queerness. Overt queerness. And Disney is, uh, despite being like super woke, you know, (laughs) and having like the first gay character in their movies like five times in a row uh, aren't the best with handling. At least ten kisses in the background where you have to like squint to see it. That can be easily edited out for China releases. Uh, Yeah, so there's a lot of speculation that Disney kind of like dropped the whole production for that reason. Eventually another studio picked it up and Netflix picked it up and you know it finally saw Because it was like, I think I read it was like 75% completed when it got like scrapped. So a lot of the work was already done. And so when it got picked up again, uh, and I think it maybe got passed around a little bit, you know, maybe like a lot of different people got to work on it for that reason. It seems like there were a lot of writers. Yes. But also if it was 75% done. I mean, what does that mean though? Well, I mean, the writing is like, I think especially for animation, like I think you have to have the voiceover and voice acting done. Yeah. Kind of like pretty early because you can't just like, I mean, you can maybe ADR stuff, but like a lot of the animation relies on that. Yeah. I don't know because I read that like they were able to get the two main actors back for the new production. So they obviously had to redo stuff. Yeah. I mean, that doesn't surprise me. I just feel like you probably couldn't do that much. Like maybe single lines or like some things like that. But like, I I can't imagine you could like, you can't do a whole new scene probably that easily. I don't know. I don't know. It's all kind of unknown. Yeah. I also read that um, the character of Goldenloin was like cast like only after the last round or maybe recast? Yeah, I so what I read was that they were using um references. They wanted Golden Loin in the film to be uh Asian, and so they were using like visual references of Asian actors or people and uh came across the the guy that they ended up choosing to do the voice acting. So it was kind of like his actual likeness kind of got to be incorporated a bit more uh-huh. into the character itself. Uh, but I think he was one of the last ones maybe cast for that reason. Yeah, it's a little unclear, like, what was the first round of production versus the second round of production. Yeah. And we probably won't know unless you talk to someone who yeah. worked on both of well, them. And I have a better grasp of, like, how, like, films are made and reshoots and, like, how they use ADR and that kind of thing. But animation's kind of a different animal. I don't think it's quite as flexible. Yeah. So that kind of throws a wrench into, like, speculation about maybe what was changed. But essentially this movie was in, quote-unquote, development hell for a number of years. And I think a lot of people, probably including Andy Stevenson, are just really happy that it got made at all. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I think they thought it was over when it was canceled, you know. Um, So really glad that we're able to see this movie actually be made and come out and be on Netflix so a lot of people can see it. Um, Should we jump into the story? Yeah, and let's jump into the film first because it kind of does a lot of, like, backstory and setup early on we have a voiceover from Nimona early on that's kind of all stuff that we're going to kind of get into later so it's not really worth talking about too much up front the history of the kingdom yes we kind of get an interesting like 
almost explanation because it begins medieval and then it's like a thousand years later. So it's still kind of medieval, but like also futuristic in a lot of ways. Yeah. And we're introduced to uh, this like ceremony where knights are being or, or trainees are being knighted. Right. And we're introduced to Ballister and Ambrosius, two of our main characters. Mm-hmm. They are both being knighted. And we find out that uh, Ballister, I, I guess like, Everyone who's in this program are like noblemen. Nepo babies. Nepo babies. (laughs) (laughs) Exactly. Nepo knights. Nepo knights. (laughs) I love how much this is making you laugh. (laughs) No, that's so great. I love the alliteration of Nepo knights. (laughs) But no one can be a knight unless your ancestor was a knight. So it's all... Bloodlines, it's basically the aristocracy, but you get to be police. Like, <laughs> <laughs> yes. Um, except for Ballister, who I kind of forget the exact like way this happened, but like Ballister was chosen at a young age to train to become a knight, even though they were a filthy, disgusting peasant, <laughs> a serf. And the queen is a like, plebeian. I'll take, I want him to be a knight. Like, I-, I choose him to be the first one who's like a commoner. Yes. So he's feeling, Ballister's feeling a little bit out of place, and Ambrosius is trying to support him and make him feel better. And we realize very early on that these two are in some sort of romantic relationship. Yeah, and this is how the movie is starting out. Very, very different from how the graphic novel starts out. Yes. So I think this is a good point to kind of like get into some of the like one of the biggest differences and that is at the beginning right so in the comic we are introduced to Ballister and Ambrosius as kind of archetypical characters right Ballister Blackheart his so they change his name in the movie yes he's Boldheart <laughs> in the film in the comic he's Ballister Blackheart and <laughs> Ambrosius Goldenloin <laughs> and you know, Blackheart is kind of this classic villain. We're told that he's like done like all these like dastardly plans and he's like also robberies. kind of like a mad scientist, right? Yes. And he has a secret lab. Yeah, and he loves science. And Ambrosius is kind of like the the golden-haired uh hero who always comes in to save the day. And like in their first interaction, right? Like uh Blackheart is doing like a little heist when Ambrosius shows up and He's stealing, like, science equipment, and uh, Ambrosius says, unhand that science, (laughs) which is maybe my favorite line in the whole comic, unhand that science. Yeah, Ambrosius is kind of portrayed as, like, kind of dumb. Kind of dumb. Right? But is very, like, appropriate for that type of character, right? Yeah, and obviously we find out later he's being manipulated by, like, the government and everything, so it makes sense that he's a little dense, right? Yes. And he's a little too quick to assume his, like, stereotypical role, right? Absolutely. Um... And also, like, I love the scene where they're, like, sword fighting in that same scene you're talking about with the unhand that science, where he's like, and now he must fight because it's my job. (laughs) Yeah. You can tell (laughs) that this is something that they do all the time. Yeah. There's, like, beats to it, right? It's almost like this is an ongoing, like, pulp comic series. Yeah. That Nimona kind of interrupts. Yeah, and and it's interesting, too, because it's kind of established, although I wanted them to get a little bit more into it, that, like, the, what's the government called? The institution. The institution kind of lets Blackheart exist. Yeah. 
And to be like a foil for Goldenloin. Yeah, I kind of wanted them to get a little bit more into that. Like, is that for Goldenloin's benefit or for his, it's his choice? Or is it like, does he serve a function? Like the public perception of like, yeah. we're winning, Yeah, do, we, do they need a villain to fight? I kind of yeah. wanted them to get a little bit more into that. But, you know, so we, we begin with these like archetype characters, right? And then you start to peel back the layers and you realize like, oh, Blackheart and Goldenloin actually have like a past. They used to be like romantically involved mm-hmm. and like it's more messy than that. Like you see the characters evolve. So like you begin with like kind of almost as simplistic of a character as you can and then evolve. The movie kind of does the opposite where you're introduced to them in a very like humanizing circumstance. They're both kind of in the same position, you know, uh, Ballister is feeling nervous. Ambrosius is like, hey, it's all good. And like, they're both just like knights being promoted, essentially. And I think there's some, I I, I don't hate this like change, but there is some messiness with that, I think. Mm -hmm. Because it kind of almost goes against like what the comic is doing completely, which is fine, but I do like what the comic does a lot. Yeah. So you're kind of like abandoning that because- Ballister never really ever commits fully to, like, the villain. Being a villain. Yeah. He's always kind of a man trying to prove his innocence, right? And mm-hmm. similarly, Ambrosius is never, like, the perfect golden-haired, like, <laughs> uh, hero saving the day. Which kind of makes the fact that they keep his name as Goldenloin. Yeah. Really weird. <laughs> like, they changed Blackhearts to Boldheart. Yeah. But they didn't change Goldenloin. Yeah. And they say it a lot in this movie, like <laughs> Sir Goldenloin. Yeah. Without, like, even a hint of irony, <laughs> which is odd to me. Yeah. And similarly, in the comic, when the comic begins with Nimona finding Blackheart and being like, hey, I want to be your sidekick. You're, like, the, the... The top villain. Yeah, the best villain ever. Like, you're you're... Your schemes and your plans are, like, amazing, and I want to be a part of it. And and he is. Like, you know, he's, like, that character, right? And it makes sense why Nimona would go to him to kind of, like, be a part of this chaos, right? To kind of overthrow the system. Yeah. And it makes sense, too, in the movie why she first approaches him, because she thinks he's that character. But she quickly realizes, no, he's not. Yeah. But she still sticks with him. And she still wants to be his quote unquote sidekick, even though she probably outranks him as in far villainy. in villainy <laughs> and still calls him boss. So there's like some holdovers from the comic that kind of I feel like don't quite fit with the film. Yeah. With the changing of the backstory and the characters. Well, let's talk about what happens in the movie. Yes. Because um, they're going to get knighted. And then all of a sudden, as, you know, Ballister is getting knighted by the queen, the sword that he takes from her that she knighted him with suddenly turns into a weapon and kills the queen. And then Ambrosius, in reaction, swings his sword at Ballister, cuts his arm off. Yep. And then Ballister flees. And then everyone's like, oh, queen killer. We always knew he was scum because he was a peasant. Like, all that shit. And then he has to go into hiding. And that's where Nimona finds him and is like, hey, you're a villain. I'm a villain. Like, let's team up. And like one thing I noticed, and that's tying into your conversation about the holdover, is him making the metal arm for himself. Because in the, you know, comic, 
he's a mad scientist, right? He's had the metal arm for a long time. Yeah. He probably like scienced it up for himself. In this one, you're like, where does he get the skills and the materials to construct a metal arm for himself? Is he like a technological engineer? Like what's his experience with that? Like they just are like, oh yeah. And then he just makes a metal arm. That's a really good point. His like scientific (laughs) and technological uh, understanding aren't really present in the film, but he makes that. And also like very quickly, because it doesn't seem like, I don't think that much time passes from when the queen is killed to when he makes the arm. Yeah. Like almost no time at all. So yeah, that's another kind of like odd holdover that doesn't really tie into the character completely. Yeah. I do want to talk about the book version of this, which we only find out later in a flashback when he's telling Nimona about it. But, you know, Ballister kind of says like, because Nimona's all like, oh, let's kill Ambrosius. Like, <laughs> oh, I'm going to murder him. And he's like, no, we have a past. Um, we were both knights in training, which is similar to the movie, but we were jousting and I beat him in the joust. And then when I was like riding away, his lance like turned into a, somehow was a gun and like shot off my arm. Yeah. And like Ambrosius always said it was an accident. He didn't mean to, but he clearly like did it because he lost and he wanted to get the better of me. And then the institution or the Institute was like, you can't be a hero anymore. You can't train with the other knights because you don't have an arm. And so he basically said, I was forced to become a villain. Yeah. Even though he made a really cool robot arm for himself and is like totally competent. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) But yeah, so that's kind of like the tragic backstory in the comics between him and Ambrosius. Yeah. So like we said, Nimona in the film sees what happened with the queen and approaches, uh, Ballister, for this reason, finds him and proposes being his sidekick. In the comic, it just begins with her showing up in his lab and is kind of like, what does she say? Oh, the agency sent me. Yeah, and you're like, what agency? (laughs) (laughs) She's like, oh, they think you need to, like, do better with your public image towards the youth. And (laughs) the, the banter is great. Yeah. But in the comic, she quickly, almost immediately reveals that she is a shapeshifter. Changes into a shark right away. <laughs> Jumps you know, the shark right away. You know what this reminds me of? What? Moana. Oh, yeah. And that one Maui. joke where Maui's like the top half of him is a shark. Yes. What is it about like being a half shark or a <laughs> shark on legs that's like visually? It's so good. It's very funny. <laughs> and I also love in the comic, she still kind of has like slight boobs. Kind yeah. Of. <laughs> But so she's kind of like, she's very immediately like kind of fucking with him and like turning into different creatures and stuff. And uh, he's immediately like intrigued by this and like has all kinds of scientific questions about like your mass is changing. Like if you change into a rhino, you're heavier. So like what's going on? Ask for her origin story. And she gives him this whole explanation about like, oh, I was a little girl and like, there was this witch that was stuck in a hole and was like, help, get me out of the hole. And she's like, I can't. She's like, okay, I'll just turn you into a dragon and then you can lift me out of the hole. And it's this whole thing. And Ballister is like, that makes no sense. It's funny because like in the movie, there's like a scene where she's like kind of explaining her backstory to him. And it's clearly just she's making it up as she goes along. She talks about like wishing on a well that someday she could be on a subway explaining her backstory (laughs) to like an idiot. Like (laughs) I will say that was one of my favorite bits of animation in the whole movie. Yeah, like the paper style. Yeah. So they're on a... uh, a subway and they're passing all these tiled walls. And as she's telling the story that it animates on the tiles 
but you're still getting things like moving past them. Mm-hmm. But it's a really cool stylistic choice that I thought was really neat. Yeah, I really liked it too. So we know in the book, like in the graphic novel, that she's a shapeshifter. But we come to this knowledge uh, a little bit later in the movie, at least for Ballister. He doesn't realize it. They kind of... He ends up getting thrown in jail, and Nimona comes to break him out. And during this breakout scene, she has to transform to get them out. And she kind of makes Ballister promise to not freak out, turns into a rhino, a whale, the whole shebang. Yeah. It's a pretty fun escape scene with her turning into different animals and kind of giving the runaround. Like, I love when she's a whale and yes. just drops through, like, multiple floors <laughs> of the Institute. Uh, it's it's a pretty fun scene. Yeah. Uh, let's talk about the Institute, though. Yes. In the graphic novel, the Institute is just kind of this vague government agency, right? Yeah. We have the director, who's a woman who's in charge of it, who we know right away is a villain in the graphic novel. Immediately. Immediately, she exudes villain energy. To be fair, I feel like you also know pretty quickly in the film as well. Yes. (laughs) (laughs) She doesn't hide it super well. No, no, for sure. But it's a lot more obvious in the graphic novel. And in fact, we have like early scenes in the graphic novel of the director talking to Ambrosius, talking to other people, and, you know, just saying like, oh, these are the evil things that we're doing. This is how we want to kill Nimona and Blackheart, blah, blah, blah. But, like, eventually Ballister kind of figures out that the Institute is doing, like, these experiments, is conducting um, research on very, like, dangerous substances with no regard to, like, the public safety, things like that. Um, And he's sort of trying to expose them for what they are. And with the backstory of him and Ambrosius, you kind of have this, like agency that is kind of like pulling the strings potentially. Yeah. And I mean, you realize very early on in the comic with Blackheart that he's very much like, I don't kill people because he has to kind of like stop Nimona from killing people, which she is very eager to do. He's (laughs) like, there's kind of a code. And it's very quickly that like, even though the public perception of him is as a villain, that he's really not against the people or anything, but against uh, the Institute. Against the government, essentially. The movie is different. The Institute is definitely more like the cops. Yeah, it's more of a arm of the government Mm -hmm. or the powers that be. Yeah, and I mean, the director is evil, obviously. But we also have this whole narrative um, that's not present in the graphic novel, which is this history of Glorith, who was this uh, knight who, like, slew... Slew? I think slew. It doesn't sound right, but I think you're yeah, right. Yeah, killed a monster <laughs> in the past, and then she and her descendants were like these knights. And in the movie, like, they've created this huge wall around the city. No one can leave the city. They have all these guns pointed outside the walls to attack any monsters. And these knights are, I guess, to keep the peace internally... And also fight any external monsters. But it's implied that, like, this whole narrative is completely false. And that they have this wall for no reason. And there aren't actually any monsters out there. Which I think is an interesting idea. I just don't know if they fully explore it in the movie. Yeah, it's a little clunky, unfortunately. I think the idea of this, it tries to add more reasoning to the comics setting. Because the comic is, like... 
the comic is more medieval. Like, yeah. it feels like a more of a medieval society where, like, people are at the market and, like, they're dressed that way. But then they also have cell phones and, like, TVs, right? Yeah. Like, the technology in the comic is more of, I don't want to say an afterthought, but more, like, just kind of... In the background. Yeah, whereas in the film, they kind of make the medieval influences more just very subtle. It feels much more of, like, a futuristic society. Yeah. And I feel like they tried harder to explain how this world kind of came to be, which is interesting, but also could have been done better because like the wall thing was like wait there's a, yeah there's a wall and they have like these guns and yeah and then like but in the finale there's like a, a whole thing with like guns these huge guns mounted on the wall i guess to fight monsters but like where what are monster- there monsters are there monsters? do people think they're monsters yeah it's very you know what it reminded me of in the recent batman movie where in the third act they were suddenly like Oh, the seawall. Oh, yeah. And, and I'm like, like what there's, a, there's a seawall. And they're like, yes, and it's very important. <laughs> <laughs> it wasn't even that bad, but it was kind of like, wait, I don't quite understand this. Same thing with the Institute. Like, it seems like the government, but like there was a queen. Yeah. Did she get replaced? Like, it just kind of feels like the Institute is the government, even though it's not. Yeah. And in the comic, they mention the king. But we never see the king. No, which almost feels like more like a joke in the comic a little yeah. bit. I also read someone's review of the film and I kind of agreed with this point, even though I didn't necessarily pick up on it. But like the whole there, there's a class consciousness in both the comic and the film, right? Of like the lower classes, you know, fighting the upper classes. And in the film, like Ballister comes from like a kind of lower class society. Yeah. But that's not ever really depicted very well in the film. Like, you see people around in the city, but there's never any, like, understanding of, like, oh, are these, like, the elites? Are these, like, the peasants? Everyone seems fine. So if there is civil unrest, like, what's it over? Uh, It's just another aspect of the film, I thought, like, of the world building of it that I thought could have been a little bit more honed in or intentional. Yeah, I do like the style though of the film like the knights and kind of medieval influences with like technology and like flying cars it's a cool idea i think it's i think it's cool and i i like that they went for it um so in the in the book the institute is amassing uh jade root which is a vague poison Ian. (laughs) it's the vague villainous substance that is illegal everywhere and ballister kind of figures out that the institute has like huge quantities of it that they're experimenting with it and to him this is like a breach of his morals right yeah. and this is kind of showing where he's supposed to be the villain and yet like the institute is obviously the bigger villain right yeah and he has this plan and he and Nimona kind of work through it like they have a couple early heists where they're figuring out the institution's secrets right um but then once they figure out this j root thing They're like, okay, this is what we're going to do. We are going to poison the people, (laughs) but with something that is not going to hurt them. Yeah. It'll just make them sick. But we're going to put out like these rumors about the Institute having the jade root poisoning, which they do. So then people will correlate them and start getting angry. So like, yes, the Institute shouldn't be experimenting with this deadly substance, but they're also like poisoning people. Yeah. To make them think that they're being poisoned by the jade root. (laughs) 
it's a really interesting and kind of complicated moral dilemma that I feel like could have been explored a little bit more in the comic. Yeah, it's just kind of like, oh, and this is what we're doing now. Yeah, and like at one point Blackheart like feels like conflicted about it, maybe a little bit. But I think ultimately the means in which that they are trying to resolve this problem is like, like I thought at some point it would come out that Blackheart had poisoned the people and I like know. it would turn people against him. Or that he'd feel, like, more conflicted about it. Like, the means to an end in a revolution. Like, it makes you think of Andor, which tackles all those philosophical problems, like, really well. And I was like, I think it could have gone just, like, a little bit further with it. Yeah. Um, In the movie, though, Ballister is trying to clear his name for killing the queen. Like, he's like, I didn't do anything. The sword in my hand literally turned into a weapon. And so he and Amona kind of agree to try to clear his name and then she'll be his sidekick forever is the deal. But they're like, okay, listen, the squire gave me the sword. Maybe the squire had something to do with all this. So they decide to track down the squire. So they find him in a market. This is probably the funniest like yes. portion of the whole film because Nimona turns into like a little child <laughs> but is also very like creepy Terrifying. and unsettling. <laughs> like I love her asking the squire like, I, I forget what she says, like, something about, like, oh, can you please help me? Like, just follow me down this, like, dark alleyway. Yeah. And the squire's like, ugh, who can I pass this child off onto? <laughs> <laughs> and then she's, like, freaking him out and chasing him around. Meanwhile, uh, Ballister's being chased by, like, the cops. Yeah. It's, it's a very, like, hectic, frantic scene. But everything going on with Nimona is, like, super funny. I really love this part. It's, it's hilarious. But, um... I do want to mention that in the movie, the whole, like, Nimona being a monster, I think is kind of, like, harped on a little bit more. Mm, yeah. I mean, in the book, Nimona is super sensitive sometimes. And especially when Ballister is like, oh, my gosh, we should, like, test your powers. Like, she's very protective and, like, defensive. And resents being called a monster. But the movie is very much like... You know, Ballister being like kind of offended and like fearful of Nimona and her shape shifting. Whereas in the comic, Ballister is just kind of like, oh, cool, you're a shapeshifter. Like, I'm interested in a scientific way, but yeah. I don't really like have a moral commentary on this. And in the movie, Ballister is like, what are you? Like, how did you get this way? He keeps telling her, like, it makes me uncomfortable when you change into other things. Yeah. Like, can't you just be a normal girl? The social commentary is much more overt in the film, but I think handled like really well. No, I think this is intentional. Yeah. I think like in a in a way that's supposed to draw attention. And I think this is almost drawing a connection with transness, right? Or just queerness in general, right? Like, can't you just be normal? Mm -hmm. Can't you just fit into this? like mold can't you just fit into what we expect you to be the way you present yourself makes me uncomfortable yeah exactly and and just being afraid of the unknown here and i think nimona has an interesting comment here because ballister asks her like what does it feel like to change to shapeshift and she says like it feels worse not to right yeah. she talks about feeling an itch when she doesn't change for a while and like he kind of says, like, well, what would happen if you if you stop changing, if you just stay in one form? And she kind of jokes and like, oh, I'll die. And then she's like, just kidding. But like, I wouldn't really be living. And I think that that's the most overt reference to being trans or being queer. 
Yeah, and I really loved this conversation and this take on the comic. Because, I mean, that that's always been present in the comic. But I think the film makes, a, like, more of a point of it, which yeah. I really liked. And it actually, like, I think that is more interesting than the whole I'm a monster thing. Yeah. And society sees me as a monster, which is also relevant to the, the trans discussion as far as, like, the public reaction to it and like the the danger that trans people demonizing. Absolutely. Like that's a totally relevant uh, factor, but also something that we've seen in a lot of other movies, specifically animated movies, right? The whole I'm powerful, but I'm seen as a monster. They won't understand that kind of thing. Whereas I feel like the conversation Nimona has about with him is like kind of more nuanced and kind of like really interesting. And like, I don't want to say more of a, positive um take on it but it's less about like society beating you down and more for that character to just like kind how of, it feels yeah and more for them to just explain personably day to day how they feel about their identity yeah and i kind of wish like either like the finale I, I don't know i wish maybe that like that tone or that idea was kind of maybe pushed farther into the film a little bit yeah i really like this moment though and i think it's a really clear you know allegory for transness and queerness and i'm really glad the movie put this part in the film yeah i'd like to talk here just for a minute about the animation and the style of the film yeah which i'm pretty i'm a little conflicted about i agree (laughs) okay good i i think it's interesting because we're going through a shift right now in animation generally where for a while Pixar was kind of the front runner and it was all about like how textured and detailed the, the hairs the were. hairs, the hair follicles <laughs> and the skin was and like every textural difference, and right? And the really big eyes in women. <laughs> yeah. Women have huge eyes. Yeah, that's true. And like the tiniest waist you've ever seen. Very true. <laughs> But we saw a total shift in this a few years ago with Into the Spider-Verse and and Klaus, which was another Netflix animated movie that was like very unique. And I think we've seen more movies start to take on this approach, like the new uh, Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles movie has a really cool vibe to it. The Puss in Boots movie. The Puss in Boots movie is another great example. So we're seeing a push more towards like an integration of like the advantages of 2D animation with 3D animation and more of an stylized stylized artistic approach, which is really cool. And I feel like this movie is leaning into that to an extent, but I don't think it has the attention to detail that makes those other movies really successful. I felt like Nimona's animals were the worst. Really? I don't know what it was about the pink creatures yeah but it didn't look right to me yeah there was something about the light on them that was yeah too, it was too bright yeah there were moments when like i think i think a lot of the animation and the way characters move yeah is nice but i think the uh like the rendering of them like they're too i think everything is too smooth yeah and everything kind of lacks texture mm-hmm. i also don't like the character models I don't like the really big-eyed character designs. Yeah. I think Nimona looks pretty good. Yeah, I like her. But I don't like Ballister. I just don't like that big-eyed look or Ambrosius that much. Yeah. Which is ironic because that's like almost the exact opposite of the comic where characters are rendered with just like dots for eyes. Yes. 
But it, it makes and little like claw hands and, and little little <laughs> tiny hands. But it makes I this is probably a mean comparison, but it makes me think of when they make an animated movie based on like a toy, like a girl's toy, like a Barbie. 3D movie or a Bratz 3D movie <laughs> where it's like the default is really big eyes. Yeah. And it's just not a style that I like enjoy that much. And similarly, I felt like some of the backgrounds uh, felt maybe a little like vacant or lacking detail and texture or like even just characters. They didn't always feel like super lived in. Yeah. Despite the cool thought that went into this world. Yeah. The medieval and futuristic combination. Sometimes it just felt like maybe like a little unrealized. Yeah. I, I just for some reason, every time I saw like one of Nimona's animals, I was like, it doesn't look quite right to me. That's interesting. I don't know if it was the color, the lighting, the texture, um, but those parts stood out to me. But yeah, I agree. I feel like there's a lot that's done well, but it's like almost just not finished. Yeah, it's just, it's lacking that like last 5%. Yeah. And that's always the thing. It's like, you know, that last little tiny bit takes so much work, but I also think is like really crucial to like really making it feel like a fully rendered vision. Yeah. And to be fair... We already explained the history of this movie. Yeah. And I don't know what forces were against them. I don't know what their timeline or budget was like. I mean, those are oftentimes the biggest factors uh, contributing to something, maybe looking a little incomplete or a little untextured or what have you. Yeah, I know. So the Squire, they tracked down the Squire in the movie. Yes. Yeah. Um, And he tells them that I took this video before the ceremony because I was, like, doing this thing, blah, blah, blah. But the video shows the director coming in and switching the swords. So implicating the director in this crime of killing the queen. And so they have this video, and Ballister's like, oh, I'm going to go to, like, Ambrosius with this video and tell him what's going on. Because in the movie... They literally were just like in a relationship and then he cut his arm off and then he's like, we're still together, right? And he's like, maybe not. I don't know. (laughs) So he's like, I got to show him this video. They're still like working on their issues, Ian. Yes, they're hashing things out. Unfortunately, the video gets destroyed and this kind of is like the point where Ambrosius kind of still sides with the Institute against Ballister and that kind of like is the biggest sever in their relationship. Yeah, and this is where Ballister kind of more like, agrees with Nimona's style of, like, causing chaos. I was, so, like, I liked this moment, and I just wish it led to, like, more villainy. Yeah. Because I thought, oh, man, because this is, like, the halfway point, and I thought, oh, are we going to get, like, a big shift here where uh, Ballister is, like, I'm the villain now, (laughs) and we're going to get the version of him, like, in the comic that's, like, more entrenched in that. But it's kind of just this, like, more one action scene. Yeah. Yeah, and... Like, talking about the character of Ambrosius, I know we've, like, already kind of discussed his, like, archetype and everything, but, like, I think it was, it's interesting that in the book, we have a scene of him and Ballister talking where Ambrosius actually tells him what happened during that jousting scene with his arm. And he says, you know, the director came to me and said... We want you to be, like, our chosen hero. So you just have to defeat Ballister in this joust, and you'll be the hero, and, like, don't lose. And here's this special lance. And then, you know, he lost, 
and was angry about it and kind of like grabbed the lance. And then he says it kind of like went off in his hand and he didn't know what it was. But like kind of him taking ownership of what he did to Ballister and apologizing for it. And Ballister kind of says like, this is the first time you've apologized to me for what happened. And I think this is really interesting in the book that they have this very complicated past where Ambrosius like just denied any wrongdoing for so long. And then, you know, Ballister was like carrying this grudge, but almost felt like Ambrosius wouldn't even acknowledge what he had done to him. Yeah. And I really love that scene of him like actually saying sorry and Ballister being like, that's the first time you've literally ever said that about this whole situation, that you're sorry. And you can tell that they're kind of like reconciling here. And it's really great. Yeah. Let's talk about the science fair scene. (laughs) (laughs) This is only in the graphic novel. This is where Nimona and Ballister go to a science fair. Nimona says to cheer Ballister up because he's sad. Um, Nimona first turns into a little boy, which is very similar to getting the squire scene right in the movie. And then into a cat to sit on Ballister's shoulders. Uh, It's very funny seeing them interact in the science fair. But Ballister ends up approaching the scientist, Dr. Blitzmeyer, who's studying um, anomalous energy. Yeah. And she has this this device that just glows. But and there's kind of a joke where it's like, oh, what does it do? And she's like, oh, that's it. But it's powered by this anomalous energy. And she's kind of explaining it and being like, oh, I discovered it among like magic users like in another land. And I'm trying to harness this energy. And around this time, Nimona kind of has a whole episode where she can't transform out of the cat. And it's kind of a whole funny sequence where, like, then Some guard, guards see them. Guards are chasing them and she's running around as a cat. But, like, he kind of realizes, uh, Blackheart realizes that, like, her power is fueled by this energy and that she couldn't transform then because that uh, device was using up that energy around her. Yeah. I think this is interesting because I feel like it's very specifically inserted into this comic. Mm, for the for the ending. Yes. Yeah. And it feels very clunky. I agree. I remember reading like it's like a whole page of multiple panels of her explaining this and her like the backstory of it. And I remember thinking like, all right, this is going to be like significant. Yeah. As Dr. Uh, Blitzmeyer is explaining all this, you're like, why are we listening to her? Like, what's this whole thing? And she does come back as a character, but she feels like a very inserted character. And this whole scene of them just randomly going to the science fair, even though it's hilarious and funny and good and I enjoy it, it's very obvious that maybe around this time, Stevenson is considering the arc of the story and it has the end in mind, right? Maybe has had the end in mind this whole time, which he claims he did, but like was trying to figure out how to get there. And then at this point was like, okay, what do I do? Because remember, this is being published like sequentially online, right? You can't go back and redo stuff. You're not writing a whole book and publishing it once. It's like week to week. Yeah, it's funny because even though a lot of time and obvious attention is paid to Blitzmeyer in this scene, in this setup, I also feel like she and the device could have kind of easily have been written out in the finale. We don't need it. No, not really. So I wonder if it was more like Stevenson 
either had one idea for it that maybe didn't fully become realized or like wanted it in their pocket for like the finale yeah. in terms of how to use it. But yeah, no, I mean, like, I think it works well enough, but like you were saying, it very feels, it very much feels like, uh, okay, this is an obvious setup for something that's going to happen later. Yeah. Uh, I want to take a moment here and talk about the art style of the comic a little bit. Yeah, we talked about it a little bit already, but I'd love to hear more of your perspective on it. Yeah, I mean, we mentioned, like, Andy Stevenson's characteristics, like, very small hands and feet, <laughs> uh, and, like, minimalistic faces, but uh, they still manage to get a lot of, like, really funny expressions yeah. out of their faces, which is really cool. The thing I thought was really cool was how quickly I saw the art quality advance from the beginning of the book to like even just like a third of the way through the book. I know. Like the first couple pages are very much uh, a grid of like 12 panels a page where it's basically just the characters on like a blank background talking. Yeah. And I mean, like you're still getting like the funny gestures and expressions and like the good banter that's like really solid. But I think there's a lack of um, like establishing shots of like scenes or locations like at one point they're just walking into a room and they have to say like oh we're doing a heist on this place yeah and you're like where are you yeah you don't quite know where they they are or like you wouldn't have known it was a different location if it wasn't like stated explicitly right but not too far along you start to see an advancement of uh panel layouts and uh that are a little bit more ambitious which is really cool the style becomes like maybe a little bit more uh like clear clear and concise uh shading uh there's there's more shading and i wonder if they got someone to start doing their coloring because that's really common Mm. in comics i don't know if they did because i think this was his uh senior project for college really the whole thing yeah oh wow that's awesome yeah i mean that's still really impressive that they advanced that far in the coloring Mm -hmm. because different scenes have different color palettes and like there's shading on the faces and stuff especially in scenes that become more dramatic And, you know, as it goes, like, there's more time spent to pacing where it'll just be a character, like, maybe milling around if they're brooding. Yeah, establishing shots. Yeah, the first few pages feel so committed to being like, hi, I'm your sidekick. I didn't hire you. Like, like it it feels like it could just, and maybe, like, I don't know what Andy Stevenson's plans were at the beginning. Maybe it was just kind of like... Eh, I'll see what I'll do with it, you know, and not committing to a big story. And they just wanted to get plot out quickly. But it does feel that way, like very much like this could be a, a few pages of a, a one off that yeah. are funny. Yeah. Um, but once it's more entrenched in this like longer narrative, uh, it just becomes so much more visually impressive and visually interesting. And I mean, it really, really comes into its own um, by the finale. And it's just, it was really cool in like a single graphic novel to watch the artist's style evolve and advance like so much so quickly. Yeah, I mean, literally seeing this person grow up and change and grow and become a better artist, you know? Yeah, and even just having a better understanding of how to use the medium to tell the story, to convey emotion, to like be more visually interesting. Yeah, um, so in the movie, we're at this part where they have this whole scene where we see Ambrosius confronting the director and being like, what's going on? Like, 
did you orchestrate this plot to kill a queen? And the director immediately stabs Ambrosius. And it's like, <laughs> yes, I did. And of course, it's not actually Ambrosius. It's Nimona. Um, yeah. And she's fine. And we've established earlier in the movie and in the book, too, that like she heals really quickly and can like regenerate from like wounds and stuff. So like obviously her and Ballister orchestrate orchestrate this so that they can film the director confessing to the crimes and they put it on YouTube. Yes. How did you feel watching this scene? Because I felt weird. <laughs> yeah. Because you're supposed to think the director killed Ambrosius, stabbed him. But then Ambrosius is like, Dying dramatically. Like, very dramatically. And I'm like, I'm pretty sure this is probably Nimona. Yeah. But also you don't know that yet. And also the, the director is giving like important information during this scene that you're kind of distracted from because you're trying to figure out if that's actually Ambrosius or I not. Know. It's a little weird. Yeah, I don't know if we should have known ahead of time that this was their plot and maybe that would have been better. Yeah, but... or like known immediately that it was actually uh, Nimona. I'm not sure. They post this video online and like the people are starting to get angry because this is the director confessing that she orchestrated the plot to kill the queen. We actually see like oh my gosh, the people are rioting, there's protests, like, you know, the general population is angry at the Institute, is angry at the director. And this is also, like, kind of a high moment for Ballister and Nimona in the movie, where they feel like they've done what they set out to do, they're really happy, they're feeling, like, really good about each other. Ballister's been really good about, like, accepting Nimona for who she is, right? Sweet scenes of them playing Monopoly, them partying and taking like <laughs> Polaroid photos, right? It's a good time. Yeah, it is. So they think they're winning when suddenly the director figures out. Well, I mean, I guess the director knew that she was a shapeshifter. So like I, the discovery of the scroll, I don't know how that like that seems like it's the catalyst for the pushback that she does. But also she didn't need it for this. Essentially, she goes on TV and says, oh, there's actually a shapeshifter working with Boldheart, and uh, that was the shapeshifter you saw in the video confessing. That wasn't me. That was this shapeshifter. And they show other video evidence of Nimona shapeshifting to kind of, like, prove the point. Yeah, and this scroll that and Nebrosius shows this to Ballister kind of implies that the monster that Glorith fought a thousand years ago, establishing this world of knights, was Nimona. Which is like, what? <laughs> yeah. And in the book, we have a scene where Ballister's also kind of figuring out who and like how old Nimona might be, where they're in this scene where they're fighting with, you know, Ambrosius and the Institute. And Nimona, like when she's a creature, gets her head cut off. Yeah, she's a dragon and she gets decapitated. And Ballister's like, oh, my God, and kind of gets briefly knocked out. And then suddenly the the body of the dragon transforms into kind of this like dark monstrosity, this kind of like dragon, but also just like demonic looking thing. Yeah. And burns up like all of the other guards, except for Ambrosius, who's takes cover behind his shield. A lot of people die in the comic. Oh, yeah. Uh, which is kind of cool. Uh, <laughs> the, the movie plays it, like, way safer. But 
Nimona saves uh, Blackheart, but he's like, what the fuck are you? Like, yeah. I watched you die. And she's like, oh, I, I heal fast. I told you that. And he's like, your head got cut off. That's different. And you also turned into something totally different. So they kind of have this conflict where you're starting to see more of, like, the power that Nimona has. And I also like questioning, which I feel like I should have thought about this before this moment, but like thinking like, are you actually a girl yeah. that can turn into other things? Or are you just posing as a girl? Are you something else? Yeah. Turning into a girl. Yeah. And I think that's the question. And we get a couple different flashbacks here, like later on in the book and in the movie where we're trying to figure out, you know, what Nimona's origins are. And I think the book is a lot more ambiguous than the movie is. Yeah, essentially she was, like, born as a little girl to parents and had, like, a bout of illness, which she quickly recovered from. And this is in the comic. Mm -hmm. And after she recovered, that seemed to be, like, maybe what, like, created her powers or like the powers saved her like like you said it's ambiguous yeah and other people claimed that like oh after the illness it was a different child which is like going back to like ancient legends of like changelings yes which were children that were supposed to be like changed out the fairies take your human child and then replace it with a fairy child and they're like weird and bad and awful and annoying, right? Which is just like, oh my God, my child is like not a perfect angel anymore. Like I should just throw it into the river. Like <laughs> I also I also think people had a connection between that and like what a lot of people think of as like autism. Yeah. That like, oh my child was like totally normal like when I had it and then like there were things that were different about it, right? Mm-hmm. And then somehow, like, at some point, uh, Nimona started changing and shape-shifting, and the village kind of reacted really negatively against her. They were horrified and afraid. And it's implied that she was sent to the Institute and that they did, like, lab experiments on her and potentially, like, enhanced her abilities or did something with it, which, like... I totally get why the movie cut this part because it's very like Stranger Things, even to the extent where they like <laughs> like shave her head. Oh, I didn't even see that in because it's kind of like a collage of like blurred memories in on a, a flashback whole page. form. Yeah, yeah, but like also the comic kind of implies that when Glorith, which in the comics Glorith is a much less central figure yes. it's just like a, an ancient legend that people don't really talk about anymore but they're like oh glorith killed a monster that was like maybe a shapeshifter and then the scientist dr uh blitzmeyer kind of says like yeah there are legends that glorith didn't actually kill the monster that the monster took glorith's form and just kept on like living right yeah and so you don't know where nimona comes from right was Nimona just a normal child that had this ability and then the Institute enhanced it with their, like, experiments? Or was Nimona a changeling, right, that was, like, replaced this human child? Or was Nimona this, like, ancient being that's, like, existed for millennia, right? Yeah. Um, so the, the, the movie kind of plays it off differently in a montage form where we see... Nimona just kind of like living in nature as like a child transforming into different animals kind of trying to fit in but not then she meets another little girl and they kind of form a friendship until the village discovers 
her power and turn against her. And that leads to her friend turning against her, which we discover later as Glorith, which is kind of odd that, like, this legend came about from it that Glorith, like, fought back the monster when she was a child and she literally did nothing. Yeah. Unless Glorith, like, fashioned this legend herself. Yeah, I feel like we need more context. Yeah. I also don't feel like I got much out of this backstory because, like, it's just more of what we already know that she deals with. Yeah, people thinking that she's a monster. Yeah, and it's like, yeah, I know. But also (laughs) being like, oh, she's a thousand years old, and then we don't examine that at all. Yes. You know? How old is she? Something I do like about both versions, though, is that the comic is more vague about it, and the movie is more just like, she's always been this way. And I, the comic is like that a little bit too, right? And I think that's kind of important, especially for like the trans allegory of it all, which is that like, there's no like, and I mean, maybe, I don't know, maybe this is more like specific to the film, that there's no like traumatic origin for why someone might be trans. Yeah. That it's just, I don't, I've just been this way. This is how I am. I mean, even Nimona in the comics, if we imply that the experiments like maybe enhanced her ability, she still could shapeshift before, yes. you know? Yeah, yeah. I think that's still there in the comics a bit for sure or a lot, but like it's m- even more so in the film, I think. Yeah, but in both versions in the comic book and in the movie, Nimona and Ballister kind of have this falling out where Ballister is like, who are you? Where do you come from? Like, what are your powers? Like, you've been lying to me and I don't trust you anymore. And this kind of leads to the two of them splitting up. Yes. We're kind of in the final act of both versions. So let's finish off with the film. Yeah. First. Yeah. So there is a falling out between Ballister and Nimona and Nimona kind of has like the whole flashback origin story moment here. And this is where she kind of um, really unleashes her full power and kind of turns. She goes full kaiju. Yeah, I think she goes into like the rage version of herself. Yeah. Which is very like kind of blurry, black, like demonic feeling. I like the character design yeah. of her monster a lot. Mm-hmm. Like it's kind of got... And I don't mean this to sound silly, but almost like a duckbill kind of mouth. Yeah. (laughs) And it's black on the outside, but like its mouth and eyes are kind of like this blinding white light. Yeah. And like it's kind of got a smoky, amorphous like shape to it. Yeah. And she kind of goes on this rampage through the city. Everybody's freaking out. Um, But at one point, she literally is just going to kill herself. Which I was like, oh my god, are we really, like, going there? Is this, like, a kid's movie? Like, what's happening? Yeah. Ballister stops her, luckily. He comes up to the point of this, like, statue sword and is like, no, Nimona, like, I care about you. I see you. I see who you are, you know. And just accepting her. And I think this is a really beautiful moment. It really is. Although, like, thinking back, and maybe you can fill this in. What was the catalyst for Ballister, like, changing his mind? I think just seeing her, not, like, not wanting her to die, maybe. Okay. Yeah. Because, I, like, I, I remember, like, their fight and her leaving and, like, the guards showing up. But then I was like, well, 
I mean, yeah, like it wouldn't take much like seeing like the the trauma that she's in. But I was like, I feel like that's a kind of important character beat that was maybe a little glossed over with Ballister. Yeah, he doesn't really like have a decision point. He's just like saving her. Yeah, it was almost just like, oh, sorry, I was just mad. Like that wasn't like an actual character flaw. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) We have the director getting crazy and going rogue and grabbing one of the cannons that's only supposed to point outside the city. And switching it around to point inside the city, inside the city, so that she can shoot Nimona. Um, and Ambrosius is trying to stop her because he's like, "You'll also take out half the city when you do this." She won't be stopped. She's like, "I'm crazy." She can't be stopped. And she stabs him, the real him. Yeah. This time, this was another thing where like. They're like, oh, my God, the city cannon is pointing inside the city. And I'm like, OK, what cannon? I knew the wall, but there's cannons on. I mean, like, I guess that like I don't I guess that makes sense, but <laughs> could have maybe explained that before. Yeah. And then Nimona's like, I have to stop this from happening. It'll destroy the city. And so she kind of like attacks the cannon and sacrifices herself to save the city here. Yeah, she kind of makes this great sacrifice and. I do feel, and I saw a different reviewer bring this up, and I kind of agree, this idea that, like, queer characters in stories having to, like, go so far and sacrifice so much and prove how good they are to be accepted by society, like, even just accepted, is, like, a little problematic, and I, I kind of agree with that. I'm like, I don't feel like she should have had to do that to like change the story as she put it that's true but i mean Ballister is a queer character and he doesn't have to do that no I, I i guess that's true yeah but i see your point and i totally agree uh we have a little bit of an epilogue here in the movie where the explosion ended up opening up part of the wall and now the kingdom is open to thoughts and emotions beyond their closed <laughs> off city walls. What is beyond the wall? Is it like attack Mountains, yeah. attack on Titan? Are <laughs> Titans going to show up? Like I I don't I need to know what's out. Like is this an entire self-sustaining city? Do they like Yeah, farm where do they get their crops? Where do the crops come from? I have so many questions. Yeah, uh very interesting, but we get no answers. <laughs> no. But we do get very sweet scenes between Ballister and Ambrosius. They're together now. We get a little kiss between them. I'd love this for them. Is this their first kiss in the movie? Yeah, I think so. I guess they just... They touch hands. They tenderly touch hands yeah. before this. <laughs> and know, say they say, I love you to each other. They do. That's kind of the funny thing is like the kiss didn't seem like that big of a deal to me because their queerness was so overt throughout the whole movie. Yeah. It wasn't like... A dramatic moment. It wasn't a Pixar moment where it's like, oh, this character has been gay the whole time and you didn't know it because you're a bigot. <laughs> you couldn't accept that they were gay. <laughs> Wait, what Pixar character is that? Oh, I don't. I feel like that's something that like just movies in general where it's like they just kiss in the background during one scene like we were saying earlier. Yeah. (laughs) Um, But then we get like a final moment where it implies that Nimona might be back. Yeah. We don't see her. No. Which I, I like the idea of, although I don't know if I like Ballister's like. What the sh? And then like, like, holy sh. Yeah. Yeah. I don't, it's, I mean, I, I like the idea that she's still alive, obviously, but that's the end of the film, though. Yes. Let's talk about the graphic novel now. So after the fallout between Nimona and Ballister, Ballister ends up getting captured and Nimona tries to come and save him. 
And when she comes to save him, she's captured and they put her in this containment unit that was meant to hold jade root. So it's like able to contain her. I don't know. The specifics are very big, right? Of jade root. Of jade root. Yeah. <laughs> um, it's green. That's all you need to know. Yeah. And we never even see like the root or where it comes from. We just see like some kind of green plasma. And it makes guns. Ian. And it makes guns. <laughs> makes really cool guns. But they have Nimona in this cell and they like want to do experiments on her. And this is where we find out about her past and being experimented on already with the Institute. Um, But they're like, let's take a blood sample. Uh, They pull the blood and then the blood becomes a sentient creature, Ian. I I can't tell how you feel about I love this. It. Okay, I do too. I do too. I thought you sounded very skeptical, but I no, think I think it's crazy, yeah, but I love it. I think it I mean like when you're talking about shape like within the idea of her being a shapeshifter, I think it like makes somewhat logical sense, right? And I love it cuz like she's acting very like begrudging about giving her up her blood and they're examining it and they're like, "Oh, it just looks like the blood of like any human, right?" And then she gets like this smile like this crazed shark tooth smile on her face. (laughs) And then the whole blood sample like turns into this like monster. Yeah. And it's kind of like separate from her. And she explains later that it's almost like that she was told never to like separate her body like that because like there will be like a stronger, more chaotic version of her that's like separate from her more conscious self. Mm-hmm. And it is two separate people because then we see later because Ballister is trying to stop this like shadow form of her, right? It's it's definitely more like it's sentient, but it's just like pure rage. I said in the movie it was like the rage form of her, but this really is kind of the rage shadow form of her because it doesn't have that connection to the rest of her. But the rest of her in this containment unit We see her as like this little girl, right? And I think the contrast is really interesting. And she stays as this little girl form throughout the finale. Yeah. We see little girl Nimona. And then we see like rage monster Nimona, right? And these are two parts of her. And I think the connection is obvious, right? This is who she is. Yeah. These are the two parts of her separated. And it's like, you know, this wounded young girl and also this like unstoppable power. Yeah. Um. Ambrosius tried to like hold back the monster while Ballister was getting the younger girl form of Nimona out of like the building. Mm-hmm. And he got like really uh, badly wounded to the point where Ballister's worried that he might die. Yeah, we have the Dr. Blitzmeyer like device used here. But like you said, it doesn't really do anything or at least not obviously. It felt like it could have been like, I mean, because, you know, this is the point in the story where you're introducing new sci-fi elements and you could easily just change how those things work. Yeah. <laughs> so you don't need the device. Yeah. Um. So, yeah. So the device is a factor in this. But uh, Ambrosius is badly hurt. And Ballister is trying to talk to Nimona. Kind of, he's having kind of a conversation with both versions and trying to convince her that, uh, like, he's her friend. And, you know, this is so impactful. I feel like in the comic especially, you see their connection evolve and strengthen so much throughout the comic. Yeah. So for her to be mistrustful of him and him trying to convince her of his loyalty to her, it's, like, really sad. Yeah. She does turn on him. And I think, I mean, the device at least is the reason the alleged reason that was, she 
Yeah, I was, I was a little confused about that. Yeah, like that he tried to control her power. She thought that he was trying to control her power. Yeah, the thing she says to him is like kind of vague about like you told them. Yeah, how to control me. Yeah, but I was like, what do you, what? Like, I didn't quite know what she was talking about for a moment. Like, my one weakness, my literal kryptonite. Like, you brought <laughs> kryptonite into this home. But he didn't even tell anyone, so I didn't know who she meant. Like Ambrosius, when... I guess. Because he gave it to Ambrosius. Oh, okay. I yeah. guess. I don't know. I thought that could have been, like... I know, it's it's a little messy here. Um, But she, she kind of turns on him, and, like, the two of them, Ambrosius and uh, Ballister, end up fleeing, and then the whole, like... Institute and everything is destroyed. Not before Nimona like just burns the director to a crisp, though. Oh, yeah, great. That moment. was that was <laughs> that was metal. Yeah. The movie used that term a lot. Metal. Something is metal, but the yeah. comic book really delivered on the metal. Yes, and then Ballister is like recovering the hospital. So is Ambrosius. They're both okay, but you know, Nimona's dead. Like they're like she's gone. The Institute exploded, like everything's in chaos, but the world is kind of rebuilding now. Um, And then we get a scene with like a nurse kind of coming in and talking to them. And then they realize, wait, that wasn't the actual nurse. And the nurse that was in here originally did not fill out the chart accurately and in fact just drew a shark picture. (laughs) So we know it was Nimona. Yeah, I really liked this confirmation that she survived because after this, uh, Ballister says, like, I never saw her again. Yeah. And you see that the city is rebuilding him and Ambrosius. And Ambrosius did get fucked up. Like, he's, like, still really injured. Like, you see Ballister kind of, like, helping him, like, walk. And I love Ballister gives a little, like, commentary about always wondering if Nimona would show up again. And every time he sees a stranger give a knowing look to him... Or a cat that looks his way, or any yeah. any creature he wonders if it's Nimona. So I like it gives you that it gives you the confirmation that Nimona is alive, but also that kind of somewhat melancholy ending. Yeah, and like maybe feeling like she messed up, right? Like yeah. she could have, like her turning on Ballister in the end was like not what she wanted, maybe, and like. Maybe she can start over somewhere else, you know? Mm-hmm. It I is don't know. it is sad. Yeah. And I could see not liking it. Uh, but I thought it was maybe just that I wasn't expecting it. I thought it was a bold choice, and I at least like it for that reason. Mm-hmm. So that's the end, Ian. Yes. And that leads us to the classic question. Classic question. Which is better, the webcomic turned graphic novel <laughs> or the Netflix film adaptation? I think I know what I'm gonna say. I do, too. I I think I for sure like the comic more. I agree. And, you know, I don't dislike the film, but there was, I don't know, I just didn't, like, respond to it that strongly. You know, something else I thought of when I was thinking about the two pieces of media here was the webcomic is definitely for, like, teenagers and young adults. Yes. And the movie is supposed to be kind of, like, family-friendly, right? So vaguely for kids and adults generally. But, like, I do feel like it was toned down a bit for kids. I totally agree. On the other hand, though, I think the movie makes the gayness and the queerness and the transness much more explicit than the graphic novel does, right? We have Ambrosius and Ballister in an 
obvious relationship that's confirmed in the movie. We have them kiss each other, right? I mean, the graphic novel implies a lot, right? But we never have that explicit between them. I mean, I feel like the Ambrosius Ballister relationship, like I know they, I don't think they kiss. Yeah. But like, it is very like over in the comic. It is, but I mean, I I think it's really awesome that the movie was as explicit as it was, right? Yeah, no, I I agree with that. I like that. Although I do like the setup of the comic better with like them starting off as rivals yeah. and then discovering that backstory. Like, even though it's cool to see them early on just kind of be like romantically involved, I like the reveal of that more in the comic. Uh, the 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 trans allegory with Nimona is definitely more um overt in the film, which yeah. I do I do like and I do like the way it like discussed that a lot. Mm-hmm. Uh it's just something about the film was like I, I don't know, like parts that I was supposed to laugh at, I oftentimes wasn't finding like all that funny mm-hmm. or exciting. Like some of the animation was like pretty good, but other points I felt like uh, I could have been better. It's like I kind of had like a little issue with like almost every aspect of the film, like nothing like stood out as being like a big problem. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Like nothing was like, Oh God, if it wasn't for this thing. Right. (laughs) But it's like, I wish the animation was like a little better. I wish like the humor was like a little better. I wish like, um, this, the soundtrack honestly was another thing I didn't love. Yeah. Like every needle drop is like a female sung pop punk tune. (laughs) Where it just kind of became redundant. Yeah. Right? Where I'm like, all right, we've done this like three times now, like literally. (laughs) Um, So like, I don't know, like it wasn't like offensively bad or anything, but the comic is just really, really cool and unique in a way that I really appreciated. Yeah. And to be fair, I have my problems with the comic too. Yeah. Like I think structurally it doesn't always work in terms of the plot. Um, And it's obvious that this was made like with the art style evolving and then the plot kind of evolving, evolving where, you know, we're seeing someone like plot it out literally through two years and draw it out. So I think that adds some limitations as well. But yeah, overall, I think the like graphic novel is a lot more complex, like complex and interesting and more thoughtful and funny, honestly. Oh my God. The comic is so funny. Yeah. It really kind of makes me wish that, because the art, I wish they had done a traditional animated approach to the movie instead of trying to go for like the 3D style. And I don't know, maybe it would have been like more expensive or more time consuming. But like, I just can't help but think of like Adventure Time. Yeah. And like that art style, like something that's very simplistic. But that feels very similar to the art style in Nimona. And I think you could have gotten a lot of the humor almost directly from the comic with like the reactions and the dialogue in a 2D art style really well that's, like, a little more subdued. Because the movie tries to go for, like, a more blockbuster, big action kind of thing where I don't think all of the humor translates or it's certainly not the same as the comic. But yeah, I think a different approach could have maybe been more successful and more in line with the comic. Yeah, overall, I don't hate the movie, but I, I just have to say I prefer the graphic novel more. Yeah, I... I want to like the movie a lot more than I do, mm-hmm. if that makes sense. Like, there are good things about it. And 
I think the story generally is cool and I love it. It's queer representation. Uh, it makes me wish I had just generally enjoyed it more, I guess. Yeah. So it's going to be a book for both of us. Yes. Let's do lightning round. Let's do lightning. Okay. So first up for lightning round, I just want to like read a portion from the graphic novel that I found really funny. So there's this part early when Nimona is explaining kind of the rules of her transformation where he, Ballister asks, fine, so it's magic. What can't you do? What are the rules? Hmm. Well, I can't turn into anything inanimate for one. Unless I want to be inanimate, if you catch my drift. Two, I can only turn into creatures that actually exist. I can turn into any person, real or made up, but that's harder. Three, I'm allergic to bananas. Bananas? No matter what form I'm in, I don't know what it is. I get really bad hives. It's incredible. Hives? Not really. (laughs) And then there's another part shortly after where Nimona is pretending to be a news anchor. And the the director and Golden Loin are watching the news. And the news anchor is talking about, like, the jade root poisoning scandal. And so the, the anchor is saying, viewers are advised to examine all food products before consumption for any signs of jade root poisoning. Coming up next, an expose on Sir Golden Loin's codpiece. What is he hiding under there? Does he really expect us to believe that his junk is that impressive? Shut it off right now. (laughs) That's Golden Loin. Yeah. (laughs) I love that part. (laughs) That also makes you think of, like, one of the other little funny side things in the book that really cracked me up. Another great name was Another Knight is named Mansley Girthrod. (laughs) Perfect. Oh, that killed me. <laughs> um, I feel like we have to mention Todd in yes. the film. Oh my god. Who is like kind so of So funny, but also so terrible at the same time. Also like incredibly unfunny at points. Yeah. Like so many lines are given to him meant to be like the the funny joke line of the scene, and they're just like, ugh. Like, he does have some good ones. But, like, I don't know. His batting average is is pretty bad. I do love the hurry before the whale gets here. Oh, yeah. <laughs> that, that was a really funny line. Yeah. The, <laughs> that was good. Um, other times, I don't know, like, when he is knocked off his hover bike and he goes to fly into, like, his own portrait. Yeah. And he's like, oh, come on. Like. He's calling everyone bro. Bro. Yeah. Like, his whole thing is just being a bro. Um. It's a little hit or miss, but the the whale line was really funny. Uh, lastly, for lightning round, I just want to mention the part where Nimona in the movie impersonates Ballister and is causing a distraction on like <laughs> yeah. the subway line. And he's just like going nuts. It's Nimona as him going nuts. And then there's the scene where Ambrosius is watching the footage. Yeah. And he's like, wait, I don't think that's him. He hates freestyle jazz. <laughs> <laughs> Because she as Ballister had grabbed a saxophone and played freestyle jazz. I love that. That was a really funny line, too. That was good. Uh, That's it for Lightning Round, and that's it for this episode. Thank you so much for listening. This was a really great one to do. Yeah. If you'd like to support the podcast, uh, the best way to do that is to join us on Patreon. We specifically do not do ads in the middle of this podcast to keep the momentum going, but that means that 
the only income we receive for the podcast is through our patrons. Yeah, we don't want you to have to be like fast forwarding through ads, which I have to do all the time when I listen to other podcasts. Yeah, it gets really bad. It does. Especially when they're not even reading the ads. It's just like radio commercials. I hate it. I do too. Uh, and you should be glad that we don't do it. <laughs> so if you'd like to support us. You should us, be glad. You should be uh, thanking us on your knees, thanking us. Just kidding. <laughs> um, but, you know, your your money isn't just going into our pockets or nothing because you get uh, bonus episodes every month that are sometimes based on additional adaptations of main episodes or sometimes we're just watching film franchises. We have an upcoming episode, or maybe it's released at this point. I don't know. Probably not. On that is a Q&A that mm-hmm. we're doing where we are answering patron questions and just kind of talking about our own personal lives a little bit. So if that sounds appealing or any of the other content, as well as monthly schedules or uh, access to our Discord, Discord access, you can find all that on Patreon. Yep. And we'd appreciate it if you could leave a review or a rating on um, whatever platform you listen to. And then if you'd like to follow us on social media, we are on Insta- Instagram, Facebook, and maybe Twitter for a while. We'll see how it's long It's on Twitter, goes. Adina. It's X now. Whatever. It's really cool, and it's called X. <laughs> you can find all those links at CoverToCredits.com. Thank you so much for listening. We'll see you next time. We'll see you next time. Bye. Bye.